Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. And good morning, good afternoon. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do, a time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our chat room monitor, Andrea, await you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room with some really wonderful folks that join us. So, Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yep, we have a lovely chat room with a great group of people. The conversation is always very stimulating. It actually is getting better and better every week right now, so do come in and join us. I'm learning lots in there, and I'm sure you will too. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Right now, before we get to today's spotlight, you know, I read something this past week I just couldn't believe. In fact, I had to fact-check the story to be certain that it was true, and as unbelievable as it still seems to me, it is indeed true. Here's the headline which encapsulates the story, quote, Indian sister sentenced to be raped, then paraded naked through the streets as punishment for their brother running away with a married woman, close quote. Ravinder, you understand this culture well. How common... Are practices like this in India? I wouldn't say I understand it well. I've had my own experiences. I was, of course, born in India. My upbringing was very Indian, too. Um, You know, it is more common than it should be. That's the answer to the question. Everyone is aware that it's wrong. Um, There's lots of talk about making changes, but when it comes to these smaller communities or the superstitions or the religions or, you know, all of that kind of stuff, well, these things still go on. They're like little tribes of their own. So, yeah, as far as the country is concerned, it is totally unacceptable. It's illegal. But does it go on? Yeah, and there's lots of other things like that that do go on too. And one of these girls is like, well, she was 15, the other's 23. I, I just can't even imagine sentencing two young women to be raped. I, I, imagine the mindset this creates for, for some males. I mean, you must be aroused to rape someone, pure and simple. So at the very least, there is this strong subliminal message that it's okay to get off on rape. I find this disgusting contempt. I I mean, all I have to say is sometimes the misguided, and that's a very kind way of referring to those who would sentence women to be raped, are simply evil by any civilized definition, period, full stop, my view, end of quotation. All right, moving on. In this week's spotlight, I want to direct your attention to another interesting and subtle form of propaganda. This past week, I spotted an ad on Reddit that read, Science MA, AMA series. We are physicists Rush Holt and Frank Von Hippel, here to answer your technical questions on the Iran nuclear deal. Wow, I thought. Well, I clicked on the link to check it out. We recently, they say, co-authored an open letter to President Obama, which is signed by several prominent scientists supporting the nuclear deal with Iran. 
Their quote continues, we are physicists and experts in nuclear issues and are here to answer questions about the science and technology of producing fissile materials and nuclear weapons, operating nuclear power plants, and monitoring these and other activities to prevent nuclear proliferation, especially as they relate to the proposed Iran deal. The copy continued with credits for our two scientists, and again I quote, Rush Holt, I am an astrophysicist and currently head of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I was a New Jersey congressman from 1999 to 2015 and a five-time Jeopardy! champion who beat IBM supercomputer Watson. I have worked on international security and proliferation issues for many years, both in and out of government. For Frank Von Hippel, I am a physicist and a professor at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, where I work on nuclear arms control, non-proliferation, and energy issues. I was co-founder co-founding co-chair, excuse me, of the International Panel on Fissile Materials, served as Assistant Director for National Security in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy from 1993 to 94, and am a MacArthur Fellow. The copy continues. Since there are two of us, we've enlisted a helper to collate our answers, but we'll leave our names so you know who's talking. Close quote. All right. Now, the first thing I did was look up these two men. Rush Holt is a prominent Democrat, and Frank Von Hippel is also a Democrat, according to the DemocraticUnderground.com. He was a former chairman of the Federation of American Scientists and assistant director for national security in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy during the Clinton administration. So, I left a question on the forum. Since scientists disagree, and I trust scientists, I had this in my mind. So I said, since this debate is as much a political issue, or seems to be, as anything else, I would like to know your party affiliations. Mr. Holt is a Democrat, and therefore one can expect he is likely to lean in support of the current administration. I think I can assume from Dr. Von Hippel's involvement in areas of policy research, including nuclear arms control and nonproliferation, that he is also a Democrat. I don't mean to imply that this disqualifies you, but it certainly casts doubt, especially when other respected scientists disagree. So here's my question. Is there any aspect of this forum that serves propaganda reasons? Or is that at least a part of your objective? Thank you. Now, think about this. Does it matter that two distinguished scientists who are also Democrats are promoting the Democratic president's agenda? Does it matter that there are other distinguished scientists that object? How are we to evaluate who's correct? Should what these people have to say, the Democratic two that I'm speaking of, be downgraded just because we could possibly recognize a hidden agenda? What about the other side of this issue? Again, there are a number of scientists that oppose the deal, as well as many retired admirals and generals. But what happens when a social psychologist behind the scenes decides to combat resistance with scientific proof? Well, the thing to do is to get several qualified scientists together who have received monies, grants, etc., 
and have them write a letter supporting the president and see that it is sent to the press as well and then jump up on forums like Reddit and sell the program. At least that's what this psychologist would encourage them to do. So you might wonder, how did they answer my question? Well, it seems they took it off the forum. They just took it down. So I asked, why did you take my question down about your Democratic affiliations? Both of you have received monies, have you not, as a result of your Democratic Party activities as an elected official in one instance and as a member of Clinton's staff in the other. Is that not relevant to your position backing the current administration's effort to get the Iran deal passed? Well, guess what they did with that one? It disappeared almost immediately. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I, I, don't, I don't have a position on the Iran deal because I'm still trying to sort out fact from fiction here. But I am instead attempting to flush out of the background the reason this sort of thing goes on and how and why it affects most voters. So my suggestion be wise, pay attention, don't take anything at face value, including the credentials people put out in front of themselves. Do your homework, then make your decision. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, I have lots of thoughts on this one. There's actually three parts to this one, so I'll try and go quickly. The story itself is, of course, really important. Um, you do have to pay attention to this stuff. It does matter with the background of, of the people <clears throat> um, because you have to talk about their biases. Um, so that, that is really important. The voice of authority has been shown to shut down our critical thinking abilities and we should be aware of that. Just because someone's got credentials, it doesn't mean they're right or they're smart or they have the only right answer because, as you said, there's lots of experts and there's experts on the other side. But the second part of the story is a bit of a confession because you cover a great deal of this material in your book, Gotcha, which I have read and I've edited and I've told everyone it has changed my life and it has changed my life because I look at everything differently. But you handed me this particular story, you know, to get my comments on it and I start reading it through from top to bottom and the credentials of these people are absolutely incredible. I totally missed, it didn't occur to me to think about um, what biases they had, you know, were they representing, you know, one particular party or was this independent? I took it, you know, totally from their credentials. So when I saw the second part of your story and everything else that had occurred, I was embarrassed about myself, you know, a little bit annoyed. I think of myself as your number one student and I failed that particular class. <laughs> doesn't mean I won't go back and work harder and do more. But there is a third part of this story that is tutorial to everybody. Um, you know, just talking about how we should think about everything for ourselves. And in Gotcha, you have this section on foods and the games they play with foods. So we've talked often on the air about blueberry bits in muffins and bagels may not have any blueberries in whatsoever. In fact, blueberry bits, everybody out there, blueberry bits are not blueberry there. It's another term for blue bits of something. <laughs> um, but we were in the kitchen the other day, and we had picked up these um, oat flax bars from the store, and you said, oh, I'll have one of these because they're healthy. 
So I had to remind you in that instance, not necessarily. Remember blueberry bits, just because it says oat and flax doesn't mean there's necessarily a significant amount of oat and flax in them. So we're right so back to pay attention. We pay have attention. to learn. Yeah, it is. It's an ongoing process. I think that's what it is. You want to be realistic. Your book, Gotcha, has changed my life, um, but there's more for me to learn. Well, and the bottom line here is, you know, so we're not casting dispersions. I, these two men could be correct. I don't know if they are or they aren't, but I do think the question deserved an answer. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. During our last live show, we spoke with Frank Huguenard about his film, The Physics of the Soul. Emmanuel wrote, I didn't really get what Mr. Huguenard meant when he spoke about why some people are never truly successful and how that related to his movie. Was he saying the movie would not be successful or is he just upset about not filing patents when he might should have? CB commented, interesting that Frank's invention did not launch like Lee Iacocca's did when he worked on developing the minivan for Ford. Ford did not buy it, so Lee went to Chrysler and never looked back. Janice wrote, what did Frank mean when he said science doesn't understand how we heal from a paper cut? I'm a nurse, and I guarantee you, we do know. Mark wrote, I would be interested in hearing the guest's political views based on his philosophical views he would be a collectivist. Now, that's probably very true, Mark, and especially relevant when you consider Frank's disappointment with his own success, at least based on his comments. Rand describes collectivism as, and I quote, the subjugation of the individual to a group, whether to a race, class, or state, does not matter. Collectivism holds that man must be chained to collective action and collective thought for the sake of what is called the common good. Close quote. I guess the real question comes down to what is the common good? Is it ever in the best interest of society for us to collectively try and develop the likes of the geniuses that have given us the technologies that we have today? I don't know. All right, moving on. Serena wrote, Ravinder, I enjoyed the newsletter, and you are so correct. Your InterTalk programs have really helped our daughter. She is excelling in school. She is in the Gifted Children's Program and got straight A's last year. She goes into the seventh grade this year at Odyssey. Now, for all of you out there, if you're not getting our free newsletter, don't miss another one. Just go to eldentaylor.com and subscribe today. D. Road, I do appreciate your free forgiving program. It has made a real difference in my life. I am able to know peace now. Thank you. Well, thank you, D, for your feedback and for all of you out there. Again, remember, we offer a few free programs to aid you in your journey. To get yours, just go to intertalk, I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K dot com and choose the left-hand navigation pane. Scroll down to free MP3s and download yours today. Mika wrote, the book Gotcha is so important, it can save you years of personal research on what's really going on in the world. Eldon paints a huge picture in bite-sized chunks to help you and the world wake up. Thanks so much, Eldon, for your courage in writing this book. Yeah, I know. You really had no choice. It was the ethical thing to do and in alignment with your higher purpose. Well, thank you, Mika, and I could tell you a long story that would support that, but not right now. And Elaine wrote, I wish to thank you for your recent book, Gotcha. My mother had cousins who were professors in Germany, and she lost them when Hitler took over. 
for they were burning the books and changing history in Germany at that time and removing anything and anyone that did not agree to their way of thinking. And so today I see what is happening to our educational system and nation as a whole and feel so lost in thought. Can't people see what is happening? For we are being led like cattle by those in power. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, A God That Could Be Real with Dr. Nancy Ellen Abrams. What happens when an atheist philosopher of science with an eating disorder, joins a 12-step program and is asked to call on a higher power that she doesn't believe in to help her recover, especially when it works, leaving her asking why. Nancy Ellen Abrams' personal experience of a higher power coincided with her front-row seat to some of the greatest astronomical discoveries of all time. Her husband, renowned physicist and cosmologist Joel Primack, helped create the modern theory of the universe based on dark matter and dark energy. So she sought a higher power that could be plausible in the new picture of the universe, which is still being discovered. Now I have to add something here. Nancy Abrams' book, A God That Could Be Real, is without a doubt the most cogent account of God in our universe that I've ever encountered. Her book is very well written, and her arguments proceed with the precision of a trial lawyer whose skills are sharper than the best, and yet, from a perspective that you can identify with as she shares her personal story. You will want to read this book if you've ever found the arguments between science and religion disconcerting, or the religious accounts and stories of God confusing, illogical, or otherwise irreconcilable in today's world. So let me tell you a little bit about Nancy Abrams. She was a Fulbright scholar and a Woodrow Wilson designate who graduated from the University of Chicago with a degree in the history of philosophy of science and earned a jurisprudence doctorate from the University of Michigan Law School. She has worked for the International Juridical... <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'm going to do that word again, Jurid... Anyway, Association in Rome, a European environmental law think tank, the Ford Foundation, the Office of Technology Assessment of the U.S. Congress, and as a lecturer at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Nancy and her husband have co-authored two books exploring the explosive human potential of a shared cosmic creation story, the view from the center of the universe and the new universe and human future. Today we're going to be discussing her book, a God that could be real. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Nancy Ellen Abrams. Well, thank you, Elton. Glad to be here. It's indeed our pleasure. You know, we, we like to get three things from our guests right in the get-go, if we may. And those three things are, who is the messenger, what is the message, and of course, how do we use it? So to that end, Please tell us a little bit about your life as a young person. What did you want to be when you grew up? When did you decide you wanted to be a, a lawyer or a scientist? What was your childhood like, and how did it forge who you are today? Uh, you know, it's interesting when I look back <clears throat> that the first big question that really obsessed me when I was uh, six years old was, well, here's what happened. We moved. And um, we moved to a new house in a new town. 
And I could hardly believe it. I would stand out in the backyard, and I would think, this isn't real. And I would spin around to try to see if there was some kind of a set that was being put up to trick me. And I wanted to spin around and see (laughs) reality before they put the set up. I mean, I don't know where I got this notion from, but I did it for a long time, months, my mother says. And then I finally gave up. I finally accepted that the new house was real. (laughs) So... So what reality is has actually been a big question in my life, although, of course, my understanding of it has changed rather dramatically over the years. Um, when, I was, uh, when I was 15 years old, I was um, in a confirmation class um, at my temple, and my whole class was about to be confirmed. And just before that happened with this big ceremony, we were assigned to write an essay about our belief in God. And I had never really thought about what it was. I hadn't put it in words before. So I thought then, and I realized that everything I had actually heard about God in my painful eight years of Sunday school uh, was very unconvincing, and that it seemed to me that God was a fiction that was invented by weak people who were seeking comfort. And that's what I wrote in the essay. I handed it in, and right before the uh, ceremony... The rabbi took me into his study, and he shut the door, and he yelled at me. And he yelled, who are you to question the wisdom of your ancestors? And then, um, I must tell you, he did confirm me that day in atheism, which was certainly not his intention, but uh, there you go. And it was many years before I had to um, actually reconsider that opinion. So that also was probably uh, a turning point on this question for me in my life. At the University of Chicago, I majored in the history and philosophy of science. So I basically studied physics from a historical point of view, starting with the ancient Greeks and uh, studying all the theories as they were overturned uh, through history and um, up through uh, what was modern then, which was um, relativity and quantum mechanics. Those are now uh, about 100 years old. Right. But anyway, so that was my education, and um, I really, you know, I didn't actually have a particular thing I wanted to be. I wanted, there was something I wanted to understand, and it was the big picture. I wanted to know where, how does everything work? How does it all fit together? And there was no answer to that when I was in college. Uh, When I got out of college... I really just wanted adventure. I was pretty much fed up with being a student all my life, and I just wanted to have some excitement and adventure. And I did. I went to uh, Europe, and I spent a couple of years traveling around there. I was part of a, a cabaret troupe in Italy. We used to uh, we wrote political songs. We traveled all over the country doing cabaret shows in Italian, and it was very exciting. Um, I got a wonderful political education there too. So um, when I came back, and uh, I guess then I, that's when I went to law school. Uh, it was the beginning of the, the beginning of feminism. It was 1971, and it was quite unusual for girls to go to law school then. So it was also <laughs> it was also bad um, from the point of view of the way we were treated. And I think there were about six women in my class of 300 some, no. and we were really ostracized. We were treated like uh, we had stolen our positions from 
worthy men and who did we think we are? You know, people have always been asking me that all my life. Who do you think you are? So, um, but I made it through that, and I had some very interesting jobs after that. I worked um, at the Ford Foundation uh, for a while, as you mentioned. I was uh, I worked in the Office of Technology Assessment in the Congress, which was fascinating. That was where I brought in the third element um, that was missing in history and philosophy of science, because it really should have been history, philosophy, and politics of science. Um, I noticed you were talking about that in the first part of your introduction when you were discussing Rush Holt and Frank von Hippel, who Indeed. I know, I know them both quite well, and they are extremely honest and upright, and when they say that they're answering scientific questions about the Iran nuclear deal, they are not injecting politics into it. They are well, answering scientific that's questions. That's great, and that leads me to a question, and I have to ask it, but we have a hard break, so I'm going to... I'll ask it when we come back from the break, if I may, all right? We're speaking with Nancy Ellen Abrams about her life, work, and most recent book, A God That Could Be Real. To learn more about Nancy, visit her website at nancyellenabrams.com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Joseph is an astrophysicist. He knows how stars evolve. How space expands with the Big Bang, but problems remain unsolved. But at any moment, he is liable to put down his pencil and open the Bible. And I said, Joseph, Joseph, tell me. What is real With all the science that you know Tell me what you feel Joseph is a Catholic archbishop He is a complicated man 
He looked at me with a peaceful smile, said, I'll tell you if I can. Bible is the word of God. It's universal truth, though it may seem odd. And I said, Joseph, Joseph, somewhere out in space, don't you think there may be some other intelligent race? Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Nancy Ellen Abrams about her life, work, and most recent book, A God That Could Be Real. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music is more important to us than many recognize. It can awaken forgotten memories and has even restored lost states of consciousness. Indeed, music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. In fact, according to two recent studies, music could potentially be used as an intervention to help people with epilepsy, and listening to music improves recovery after surgery. So never underestimate the music that you choose to listen to. All right, we just played some of An Alien Wisdom, performed by none other than our guest, Nancy Ellen Abrams. So please tell us, Nancy, why is this music important to you, and how does it instruct us about who you are? I have been playing and writing music since I was a child, and um, as I mentioned before, I was part of a cabaret troupe in Italy before I Mm -hmm. went to law school. I always have written songs about what I'm thinking about because I'm trying to understand. I'm not just trying to know things. I want to know. I want to know. I want to participate. I want to feel what I know. Actually, this is one of the most important points I'd love to get across on your show about the new picture of the universe that sooner or later we will surely be discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband is one of the creators of this picture, and that's why I know a lot about it. Um, that non-experts don't know, because I've been going to the conferences uh, with him for many years because I have a, enough background in uh, physics that I was able to, um, I'm able to follow it. So I've been following the development of this uh, theory. It's the dark matter, dark energy theory, uh, nicknamed the double dark theory. Uh, and it's been developing for well over 30 years. This is really an astonishing theory. Let me tell you, let's just step back and tell you what is the question that this theory is trying to answer. Okay. And um, if the Big Bang was symmetrical in all directions, then the question that was bothering scientists was, then why isn't the expanding universe today just a bigger soup of particles? But it's not. There are these beautiful spiral and elliptical galaxies that are scattered throughout the universe, but they're not scattered randomly. Galaxies lie along invisible filaments, like um, it's as if someone had sprinkled glitter on invisible lines of glue, and the flecks of glitter are the galaxies. 
Now we're talking on the absolutely vast scale, the scale of perhaps a billion light years. Right. I, I'm advantaged here. Let me let me interrupt you just for a minute. I've seen your TED talk, and I, I just want the audience to know that, you know, when the show's over, uh, for great illustration of this, take a look at uh, Nancy and her husband. Uh, uh, TED Talk uh, on the Internet. Now, go ahead, please. Thanks. So the question is, why where, Why is there so much structure? Why are there galaxies? Why are they laid out like that? If the Big Bang is just an explosion in the beginning, what force or forces have been acting on the particles that were created then in order to array them into the galaxies and the galaxy structures that we see today? No one knew that. No one had an answer to that. And this new theory, well, it's about 30 years old now, but it's still not uh, uh, not really in the public eye yet. It challenged the basic assumption that everything's made of atoms. And instead it said that everything astronomers can see in all wavelengths of light, with all instruments that have ever been invented, the stars, the planets, the glowing gas clouds in the galaxy, all the distant galaxies, everything we've ever seen, is less than half of 1% of what's actually out there. And the vast majority of the matter in the universe is not atoms. It's this dark matter that I mentioned, something which is invisible, and it's not made of atoms or the parts of atoms. And the other key ingredient is dark energy, which is the energy which is causing the expansion of the universe to accelerate. This was a pretty wild theory, the idea is that there's been a competition between dark matter and dark energy, and that competition has dominated the evolution of the universe, with dark matter's gravity pulling the ordinary atomic matter together, while dark energy is flinging space apart. So the interaction of these two enormous uh, powers, one could say, with ordinary matter has spun the visible galaxies into being, and this is what has created the only possible home for the evolution of planets and life. It was an incredibly daring theory, and of course nobody, including my husband and his colleagues, knew if it was actually true, because there was right. so little evidence. But um, over the years, uh, tremendous amounts of evidence have come in, and many instruments have been built by various countries on mountaintops and satellites in space. Now the evidence is really convincing. And... Um, this is the new picture of the universe. And I have been involved in the whole, the whole procedure for the whole process over the last 30 years, and I know most of the scientists who've been working on this. I mean, I was basically, from my point of view, trying to understand what's real and how do I fit into the big picture. I felt like I was doing metaphysical insider trading. You know, I, was, I, was, I had access to information that hardly anybody else did. Right. I love how you put that in your book. So how does that relate, then, so to the my, music my, that we just played? Well, that music, that particular song, is a song about a conversation that I actually had with a Catholic archbishop who was also an astrophysicist. And when I would meet people who were uh, on that line between um, spiritual and science, which doesn't happen too often, but somebody like that, I would always confront them, and I would, and I would say... Um, I know you know these things, but what do you actually feel is real? And um, 
I don't know if you're going to end up playing the rest of that song, but what Joseph, this astrophysicist, he was actually the um, a friend of the Polish Pope. Uh, he was a Polish astrophysicist. What he eventually told me was, although he believed that the Bible was the word of God, he also believed that there could be aliens uh, elsewhere in the universe who had a much deeper understanding of reality and including even morality, and that their understanding of morality compared to ours would be the equivalent of Einstein compared to Newton. That's where that song goes. This is the kind of thing I've always been trying to understand. I hope you mean by that Einstein's um, math, or, yeah, I mean, they were both geniuses, just at different Oh, well, perhaps I should explain that. Um, so Isaac Newton was, of course, an incredible genius and figured out the laws of gravity. He, he was the first person to understand how the solar system actually works and, right. uh, and to present it mathematically. And, of course, Einstein's physics is still uh, true when you just consider the kinds of things that happen on Earth, slow speeds, low gravitational fields. Right. But when you get out into the universe where you have to try to explain black holes and um, incredibly fast speeds like the speed of light, Einstein's, uh, I mean, um, Newton's uh, laws just are completely inapplicable. They just don't right. work Right, so all. your comparison wasn't between a... the two men's intelligence, it was between no, the difference. No, 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 no. I'm expl- right. what, what the, the relationship that this priest was telling me was that um, just as Einstein's theory of relativity encompassed Newton and explained far more than Newton could ever explain, and yet, when you boil it down, when you come down to what's happening on Earth, they give you exactly the same prediction. In other words, okay. in the slow speeds and low gravitational fields, Einstein will give you the same predictions as Newton. But when you get out into the universe, you must use Einstein. Right. right. So that's okay. what he was comparing alien wisdom to, and that's where that song it's a beautiful song, and, and I should have played it all the way through. Had I known this in advance, I would have. But with limited time, we usually just sure. play a little bit. Your next couple, I'm apt to give them a little more so our audience can get the story, now that I know your storytelling. Listen, before the break, though, and I know this is a bit off subject, uh, but then it bears directly on your training and that of your husband's. You heard today's spotlight. You mentioned that before we went to break. My question is... Do you think it's appropriate for scientists to enter the fray of politics without making a full disclosure as to the nature of their political bias? I mean, I have no objection to these two men. And again, as I said in the spotlight, I don't even, I'm undecided on this issue because everything I read, there's two sides of it and there's so much politics involved. But my point was, isn't there a level of integrity that's called upon if you step forward and say, look, I'm a scientist, I'm going to tell you the science behind this, if you deny or refuse to also put out the fact that, well, I do have a political affiliation, but I'm ignoring that. I'm only telling you about science and or something of that nature. That's my, that was my point, my question. Interesting you bring this up, Eldon, because I happen to be an expert in this issue and in fact, when I worked in the Congress, I actually invented a method by which, uh, by which the Congress or any agency of government could get advice from scientists and separate out their personal bias from oh, their scientific that. advice. It's called scientific mediation. And um, although I proposed it when I first worked in Congress, the first country to actually try it was Sweden, where they had to make a major decision about uh, 
opening um, some nuclear plants that were uh, <laughs> that had to be that that couldn't be opened until the country, by law, had an adequate nuclear waste disposal plan. Right. And uh, you know, it's not easy to come up with one of those. So um, the Swedish government hired me to uh, to help with uh, their Swedish. See, they had a plan that was being proposed, but they didn't know if it was being proposed because it was good or because it was adequate or because it was going to save the government a huge amount of money on these nuclear reactors that were already built and could not be opened. Fair so question, right. So my procedure is really quite simple. We bring two scientists together, one who represents one side of the political issue and one from the other side of the political issue, but who share their scientific background. With the help of a mediator, in this case I was a mediator in Sweden, they explain what they agree on. In other words, they stipulate to the facts that there is no dispute about. And then they have to list their differences. Now, these are political differences, okay? They, well, political in, in the sense of what we should actually do. That's always sure, political. right. They list their differences point by point. And then what they have to do is agree on why they disagree on each of those points and put that into writing. Now, that may sound simple, but it's not, because the reason that they disagree very often is that the science is incomplete, and so they're filling in the gaps with their personal biases. When the two of them have to confront each other and agree on why they disagree, that's when the biases rise to the surface. This report that comes out of a scientific mediation like this is of enormous value to a government agency because they can see why different scientists fall at different places along the spectrum of possibility. And to the, the public that, at large. I mean, why, why, how did you fail to sell that to our own government? I'll tell you why. Because you cannot manipulate the results. It, the truth will come out in this procedure. And, it's, and for that reason, it's dangerous if the government agency has already decided what it wants to do and is looking for scientific validation. But if they are truly open and they really want to know what is the smartest thing to do, they should definitely try scientific mediation and then accept the results. No, it's extremely powerful. And in Sweden, <laughs> in Sweden, the end result was that um, my method, this mediation between two scientists, found problems with their nuclear waste disposal plan that 44 other studies that had been done by every uh, atomic energy commission in the, in the Western world and many universities, none of them found these problems because this particular uh, method was so powerful. The thing is that in science, you hardly ever, in fact, I could say never, except for scientific mediation, have scientists who profoundly disagree with each other collaborate. Well, I can tell you, I'm going to be quoting you uh, a great deal on your observations and your experience regarding this, because to me, I, it 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 really conjures a bottom line question, and that's if if our government is unwilling to do this, and they have the tool and the knowledge, uh, then I have to be suspicious of the agenda. Period. End of quotation. And and that goes for all of our listeners out there. Uh, you know, and, and I would encourage all of you, uh, you know, write your congressman. Make some noise. That's what we, we're always telling everybody here. Do your part. Uh, we're in this together. 
and suggests that Nancy Ellen Abrams' mediation method be employed so that we as a public can know the truth behind these things. And that's not, again, I'm not saying that your two friends were not telling the truth. I'm only saying that for the layperson, it can be very confusing. No, you're right. And it would be extremely useful to do this on many questions, all the scientific questions that have political ramifications. This would be wonderful because what it would tell us is what do we really know scientifically and where are the advocates for one side or another injecting their personal biases into the decision-making process? I know this is off subject from your book, but it's also very important in my mind. Is there something, I mean, do you have something on a website or a blog somewhere? Oh, absolutely. Somewhere? Well, my book, the, the book before A God That Could Be Real, the one, uh, one which I co-authored with my cosmologist husband, is called The New Universe and the Human Future. And, there's and is it a long covered section. in this book? It's in the new universe and the human future. Scientific mediation is explained and uh, examples given and so forth. Yes. How wonderful. I'm going to get that book myself. I, maybe we'll bring you back and talk about both of those other books. Mm-hmm. You have a, a, a vast amount of knowledge, and, and I certainly appreciate you diverting from your book to give us this insight. Let's, uh, let's do this. Let's, let's return, if we can, to your spiritual adventure, sure. which really began when you joined the 12-step program. It did indeed. <laughs> I, you know, I told you this story about how I, how I started out life at 15 as an atheist. And you know what? I would have stayed probably an atheist the rest of my life, uh, except that um, my life did not go so well because I had an eating disorder. And I could not get over it. And I joined a 12-step program, and they told me I had to uh, come up with a higher power of my understanding, which at first was sounded like an impossibility to me. You know, I didn't think I was going to believe in anything like that. But, um, you know, they say, act as if you have a higher power. Now, that's a very interesting exercise, to act as if, knowing that you don't. So what I did was I tried to imagine turning my food decisions over to a higher power. And I was astonished at how much better my life went. And I figured out that what I was actually doing was I was imagining the higher power as a loving but, uh, forgive me, if, if I can't say this on the radio, but I will, because there's no other word, a loving but unbullshittable witness <laughs> to my thoughts. Because, you know, if you're an addict of any kind, and I do consider myself an addict when it comes to food, um, if you're an addict of any kind, you're bullshitting yourself all the time. You're constantly lying to yourself about that thing. So yeah. there was a part of my mind that was absolutely unbullshitable and recognized my own <laughs> bullshit. So that part of me, when I conjured it up and allowed it to speak to me, so to speak, I actually uh, thought much more clearly. I was happier. I got along better with everybody. My eating addiction went away. I mean, it was, it was quite miraculous. And I was astonished and totally confused because I really didn't know what was going on. Why was this working? It seemed crazy to me. And I needed to have a coherent picture. I needed to understand what's going on. And at first I thought, oh, you know, I just have this part of my mind that's actually better than the part I normally default to. But that 
actually, when I decided that, I kind of lost it, and then I, I had to go back and start over and realize that that was not what was happening. There's something much bigger than a part of my mind. Something Hold it for was, just a second there, because I think you point out that when when you decided this was a part of your mind, that for all intent and purposes, um, you were back into that monkey mind, yeah. rationalizing and, and doing all the things that you had been doing before. Exactly. It, it was be, as if it was part of my mind. It was as if it was under my control, which right, meant there we to go. be under the control of my addiction. So right. that did not work. Bad theory. Okay, but, you know, I had experimental uh, evidence that it didn't work because I started eating again. So, you know, I was back to square one, and I really needed now to figure out what's going on. And I realized that um, the 12-step, you know, 12-step programs don't actually say just the word God by itself. They say the word, they say God as we understood God. Mm -hmm. And I realized that that's a challenge to me. That is a challenge to find an understanding that I could understand, that, that would work for me. And it, I must say it took me many years. I thought about this for years because I had these two earlier books about cosmology. Uh, my husband and I traveled around the world. We gave over 100 talks all over the place. We even spoke at the U.S. Army Science Conference, and we spoke to the executives of IRS Homeland Security and the Treasury, not just at churches and universities and so forth. Right. We spoke, at, and everywhere we spoke, Sooner or later, somebody would ask the exact same question. And the question was, but do you believe in God? Because we were talking about the universe. And I didn't know what to say to them. I really did not have a good answer. Because I didn't know what I believed in. I knew that my old, uh, my old, you know, certainty that God was a fiction was not working for me. But I didn't know what the new one was. And then when I find, when it hit me, I was asking the wrong question of myself. That's when this new book, A God That Could Be Real, began. And what happened was, I realized that if God is going to be real, it can only be real in this universe, but not real in the common sense meaning, because most people, when they think of the universe, they just think of Earth, and then they extrapolate, which is what people have been doing ever since the 17th century. But real in the unexplored possibilities of the double dark universe, basically the scientific universe. And so the question I asked myself, which really triggered this book, was could anything actually exist in the universe as science understands it that is worthy of the name God? And that totally changed the question from does God exist to what do we really want from that concept of God. What is worthy of being called God? And once I asked that question, the answer came to me right away. You know, I'm going to have you hold it right there. Okay. We're just going to leave everybody just suspended. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because, again, we have a break. But when we come back, we'll pick it up right there. Everyone out there, what could that possibly be? If you would like to know more about Nancy Ellen Abrams and her most recent book, and, I, and again, I'm going to tell you this is a fantastic read, A God That Could Be Real, visit her website at nancyellenabrams.com. Now, we have a video for you during the break featuring our guests discussing the idea of a cosmic society. You can view it in the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment 
with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Nancy Ellen Abrams about her most recent book, A God That Could Be Real. 
Now, Nancy, we just played your second musical choice, or at least part of it. It's a rather long song. Uh, Abraham was listening. Another one sung by you, I assume written by you. So yes. please tell us, what's the story with this one? Uh, when I was in the second grade uh, in Sunday school, we had to read the story of Abraham and Isaac. And we were taught that Abraham was the great founder of a religion who loved God so much that he was willing to sacrifice his child. Right. And, you know, at seven, I was hardly about to identify with Abraham. I, so I asked the teacher, I said, well, who was, a, who was Isaac supposed to pray to? And, you know, I was sent out of the room. Because <laughs> there is no answer to that question. If you actually buy that. So the thing is that that story bothered me all my life. Why, why is that considered a good thing that he was able, that he was willing to sacrifice his son? And it wasn't until I read a very interesting book by Michael Lerner that I realized that, um, the essence of that story is not that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. The key to the story is that he didn't do it. That he realized that human sacrifice was wrong. The thing is that human sacrifice was really quite common in those days. It was not doing a great thing for God. It was saying, no, this tradition has to end. Life is worth everything. That was the, that was the beginning of, um, I think, his really greatness. Interesting, so interesting, interesting. I like that. All right, let's, uh, let's move more directly into your book. I love this statement by you, quote, what I have learned is this. Having no spiritual life at all is like never falling in love. Developing a spiritual bond with a fantasy is like falling in love with someone who will never love you back. But developing a spiritual bond with a real universe is like falling in love with someone who is already in love with you. That's where God is. Close quote. Please unpack that for us and share what this realization meant to you. You know, if you've never really been in love, you can read about it, you can hear about it, you can watch movies and so forth, and think that you know what it is, but you don't know what it is. You really can't imagine it. And that is really how um, having a spiritual connection was for me for most of my life. I basically just sort of didn't think it was that important. And... And when I, when I came into this 12-step program and really started trying to figure out how to have a spiritual connection, um, I tried out all kinds of notions that other, other people had suggested, and it just seemed silly to me. I, I just couldn't get it. And <clears throat> when I understood that it is actually possible to have a spiritual connection to the real universe, to not only understand scientifically what universe we live in, but to, but to feel my connection, to actually take my place in the universe, that, to me, was like falling in love with someone who was already in love with me. It took me many years to get there, and I, I really actually save other people a lot of that by having written in a book how to do it. My first book, The View from the Center of the Universe, is about the amazing discovery that we humans actually are central to this new picture of the universe in ways that Galileo could never have imagined. We're not geographically, literally central, because there is no center to an expanding universe. 
But it turns out that we intelligent beings are central to the fundamental principles that underlie the new picture of the universe. We are, we are at the midpoint of all possible sizes. We are really the fulcrum of all possible sizes in the universe. We're living at the midpoint of time on four different scales. We are made of the rarest material in the universe, which is stardust. We actually have, we're living at the best period for Earth. Um, there's a certain period when there is both water and oxygen and large creatures, and we're right in the middle of it now. There are many ways we've found eight so far that we're actually central. And we can have a place in the universe that is defined and also accurate and also just astonishing and wonderful if we take the, make, make the effort to learn uh, what universe we're actually living in. So that, to me, is a spiritual connection. Because to me, what spiritual means is it's about my experience of connecting to the universe that I believe exists. So I think spirituality is real because the experience is real. But it's going to be very different depending on what you think exists, because that's what you're trying to connect to. You, you know, I, I have to ask you this, Nancy. Yes. There is a philosophy known as process theology, or panentheism, that asserts analogically that we are, you know, unto God as the cells of our body are unto us. In that sense, we partake and participate in another universe as one aspect of a, a greater whole. Something like what you describe in your metaphor of the robberus. Your view of God seems to make this argument somewhat tenable, again as an analogy. Is that a fair statement? Well, there are some similarities, but I don't see God as a universal thing at all. The universe is... <laughs> when you understand how our universe works, you realize there isn't anything larger than it, or even as big as it, or anything that... It, there, there can't be a God that actually existed before the universe and created it. Because there is no beginning to our universe that we can actually point to. We have a theory of the Big Bang, which explains, um, well, the stuff that we see now. There's a theory about what set up the initial conditions for the Big Bang. And there's another theory of what may have happened before that, which puts our Big Bang uh, into a much larger super-universe where... There could be an infinite number of Big Bangs. So if you want a God to create that, you have to push your God out before eternity. That doesn't, doesn't even make any sense. You know, that is... Before eternity. So, yeah. So the thing is that I wanted to have a God that was real, real in this universe, because if it isn't real, it's not going to help me. I want something that's good. I'm not in this right. for intellectual curiosity. I could have been fine without that. I'm in this for results. I need something that is going to change my life. Okay, clarify this just a little for me, though. Uh, yeah. Hawking says in his brief account of, uh, of time, uh, in the beginning there's singularity, I'm paraphrasing, of course, in the beginning there's singularity, singularity divides itself and creates all things, big bang. Uh, we look at the creation epics, whether they're the Bahir, the Vedanic literature, uh, and, and in the beginning uh, there is one. We'll use the word God. And God reflects upon himself, divides himself, and creates all things. How are those two accounts really substantially different? Oh, totally. Just totally. In the beginning, there isn't God. First of all, there's no beginning. Um, in the beginning, sounds like uh, it's a, 
it sounds like you're really saying something, but it's really no more precise than saying once upon a time. The thing okay. is, a beginning is a way that human beings start to tell a story. And the end is where they stop telling the story. There's no objective reality to a beginning or an end when you're talking about the universe. We, in science, we study the universe by going further back in time and further back, depending on how good our equipment is and how really daring our theories are. And we explore earlier and earlier. And we keep pushing in, the, in both directions, toward the future, toward the past, out in space. It's as if we're explorers and we're moving out in all directions. So the beginning of the universe is just as lost in the mist, you might say, as the end of the universe. We can't know either one of them from here. So it's really silly to say the beginning was this, that, or the other thing, because we just don't know. Okay. But the Big Bang Theory does indeed, you know, presuppose a, a beginning. Uh, or we're well, the Big trapped Bang in an infinite regress. It, presupposes, it doesn't presuppose. It explains the beginning of our visible universe. It doesn't explain everything. Because we don't know what everything is. It's not a well-defined term. If these other theories, for example, there's this theory called cosmic inflation, which mm -hmm. explains what set up the initial conditions for the Big Bang, and also explains how wrinkles got injected into the, into the space-time that was created at the Big Bang. And those wrinkles are the filaments of galaxies that we see today. In other words, matter was attracted to those wrinkles in space-time. That is a very solid theory because it actually explains what we see, what we observe. Then there's a theory that explains where cosmic inflation came from, and it's called eternal inflation. And it says that outside the universe that was created by our Big Bang is a completely different state of being. And in that state of being, everything is expanding away from everything else uh, at unlimited speeds. The speed of light has, is not a limit. And everything is expanding away faster and faster, so fast that nothing can ever form because no two particles can ever even stick together, can't even make an atom. And right. that may have gone on eternally. That may be, the, that may be eternity. <clears throat> so if those theories are right, we don't know if that one is right because we can't get evidence yet, but mathematically it makes some sense. If that theory is right, then it doesn't make any sense to talk about a beginning. I see. But so now you've integrated these theories. You're very aware of them. You now have a concept, a construct of some sort about what we refer to as God. Can you define that for yes. us? Yes, I will be happy to do that. So here's what I was thinking. If God is real in this universe, not outside it or in some mythical location, but in our universe. It has to be something that is meaningful to us. Otherwise, it's not our God. And the way I see it is this. Um, it's based on the concept of emergence, which is another scientific concept that really comes out of chaos theory. Right. So the basic idea of emergence is that, well, let me give you, let me do it through an example. There are trillions of air molecules um, whizzing all around whatever room you're sitting in. They're hitting your clothes, they're hitting the furniture, they're hitting each other, blah, 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 tremendous chaos. And yet, out of all of that crazy interaction, 
there arises the temperature of the room. Now, no molecule actually has a temperature. And yet, temperature comes into existence from the complicated interactions of those molecules. It's a completely new phenomenon. It's called an emergent phenomenon because it emerges from this complicated interaction. The same thing happens at every size scale in the universe. So let's take life. Ants. Ants are incredibly simple creatures. They can't uh, do very much at all. They recognize a few pheromones, which are scent molecules, and that's about it. But if you put 10,000 of them together in a colony, a swarm logic emerges. And the colony has all kinds of sophisticated abilities that no ant actually has. The colony can actually adjust the number of ants that go out foraging for food based on the number of, of mouths to feed and how much food they already have stored in the nest and whether there are other ant colonies out there competing. And yet not a single ant understands this. It's self-organizing. The colony is self-organizing. And it's not from the ants, it's from the complexity of their interaction. Something new arises on a larger size scale. It's true of us. We started out a very simple um, traders. People had shells or beads that they wanted to trade for something else that somebody else had, meat perhaps. And out of trading things, which humans have done for forever, it seems, um, mm -hmm. out of trading the economy, an economy arises. And at this point, the global economy has arisen. This is a, an emergent phenomenon that is so complicated that nobody understands it, not even the experts. So the, the basic idea of emergence is that from many parts interacting in a complicated way, if you step back, those parts all seem to merge together and form something new on a larger size. That is the key to a God that could be real. Now, I believe that this God is emerging from us humans, but not from everything about us, from something very special about us, <clears throat> from perhaps the deepest thing about us, the thing that really makes us human, and that is that we aspire. We don't just change our behavior based on external um, conditions, the way animals do when they um, adapt we have dreams and imagination, and we aspire to do things that we have never even seen before. And this starts in earliest childhood. This is not something you learn to do. This is something that even babies do. There's this wonderful book called The Philosophical Baby, uh, written by a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, who has done um, very interesting experiments on children as young as um, 15 or 18 months, and they have aspirations. They want things. They see things. They can imagine um, po uh, futures they haven't seen and make them happen. So aspiration is really the essence of who we are. It, each person has different aspirations, and that's what defines, I think, each of us as an individual, what we aspire to. So the complicated, the staggering complexity of all of humanity's aspirations interacting, to me, has created an emergent phenomenon. It must have created an emergent phenomenon, and the emergent phenomenon is real. Now, I choose to call that God. 
you don't have to call it God, but you have to recognize that it's real, and it has enormous power over all of us, just as the economy has enormous power over us. Governments are emergent phenomena, too. The media, there are so many emergent phenomena that we're participating in, but the fundamental one is God, because without the desire to aspire, without aspirations, none of these other things would have ever come about. Okay, you know, there are going to be people that hear what you say, read your book, and they're going to say, oh, well, that's what Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is within, we're all gods. How do you respond to that? Oh, you know, much of, much of the um, language of religion is beautiful and evocative and important, and we really need to keep it, but we do need to reinterpret it in light of the knowledge that we have today. And the kingdom of heaven, in some sense, of course it's within us. It's part of aspiration. <clears throat> the thing is, you don't want to take spiritual language literally, because the minute you take it literally, you're freezing these beautiful, uh, powerful ideas into chunks, basically, just chunks of ice, and they're useless. If you can't keep interpreting um, language, in- interpreting this beautiful stuff for for the era that you actually live in, then it will lose its sacredness and just become dogma. Now, we've hosted a few experts on that who totally agree with what you're talking about. Let me let me ask you this. We just a few minutes before the break, uh, especially in light of the conversation we just had, Paul Davies points out in his foreword that he's written for your book um, that much of the criticism that's leveled at religion by, you know, atheists, agnostics, etc., is aimed at definitions and conceptions. And, you know, by nature, they, they're they stagnant versions of Scripture or interpretations that have been made of God. So when we look at a scripture and we say, or, or we look at a verse and we say, you know, there there is a message, there is a meaning here as the kingdom within, just as we just mentioned, but it's not static. We have to look at it in a more dynamic sense. Does it make any sense to you that critics gain the traction they do, especially with young people, by pointing out, you know, a definition of God, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omniscient, etc., that these sorts of things are self-contradictory. I mean, it seems to me that it's obvious that an all-powerful God cannot build a rock that's so large that he cannot lift it. Okay, so what's so, what's so significant about that? Isn't it rather siloistic of those who would attack religion to take this as their means of argument? Well, yes, it's silly. And <clears throat> now I, I, of course, have of course read *The God Delusion* by Richard Dawkins, a yeah. very funny and entertaining book. <laughs> I love it. That's a great silly. description. Yeah, it, it, it's very silly uh, when it gets to the part about. Well, it, he starts right in the beginning by saying, "The most popular conception of God is the magical guy in the sky who can do everything and is all powerful and is omniscient." And now I'm going to write a book about why that's not real. Well, duh, you know, of course it's not real. <laughs> right. It's just, it's like putting up a straw man and then being proud of yourself for knocking it down. It's, that is not what I think thinking people think of as God. Obviously, 
there are many people who are not thinking people, and they do think of it, they do take that as God. But if you think about God, you have to come up with something that works in your life, that really works for you. Otherwise, as I say, you're in love with a fantasy, and it's, <laughs> it's not going to work out well. Yeah. So, and, um... yes, I agree with you that, that it's stupid to just try to attack that. But on the other hand, it's very important to get past that. And there are still many people who grow up in families that tell them that the Bible must be taken absolutely literally. Well, you know, the, there is no literal Bible, um, especially the New Testament. There is no, there is no um, authorized version of that. It was put together from many different documents at many different times that were written in, in different translations and so forth. So to take anything literally that's gone through so many people's pens, so to speak, is just silly. Um, it had its own political It's as silly as, as the Dawkins thing. We, what we really need to do is figure out what is it that we human beings really need from God? What do we expect from God? What is it that makes God God? Oh, well, and so. how can we get that in reality? That's what I want. And All I right, we have a hard break, it. and I, I'm, I hate to cut you off. I, I love listening to you, but we'll get another chance. We'll be back in just a few minutes. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook or drop me an email at eldon at eldontaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Gotcha. The explosive new book by New York Times bestselling author Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to win the hearts and minds of the public. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. Your very decision process is being managed and manipulated, and the quest for discovering your real self becomes exponentially more difficult, if not impossible, as a result. Pre-order now. EldonTaylor.com slash gotcha. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by... Joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Yeah. 
We've been chatting with Nancy Ellen Abrams about her life, work, and most recent book, A God That Could Be Real. In this half hour, we'll take your calls, so if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, Nancy, we just played your third musical choice, Third World Bind. And once again, by none other than yourself. So why this one? This song is one that I wrote. I was invited to perform at a conference on global sustainable agriculture. One of the things I like to do for fun is I perform at conferences and then I write a song about the, what the conference is about. And this was a, a, a scientific conference on how to make agriculture sustainable, how to not poison the ground and so forth. Right. But um, what I really wanted to point out in this song uh, is that science without justice will never change the world, that people in the third world are so badly um, treated that even if you scientifically make it possible for them to, um, to grow their crops, they're, uh, they're exploited, they're charged ridiculous amounts of interest on money they loan, they don't have health care and so forth. So that's all uh, part of the song, that the song tries to help you to imagine what it would be like to be a farmer in the third world and then just to have some scientists come in and drop, you know, drop off some um, help. Some GMO seed. Uh, pun. Sorry. I know that everybody out there is going to want to know, or I'm going to hear from several, where do you find this music? Where did, where, I mean, so I want well, you to that, take protected. a minute for a commercial plug and tell our audience where they can get your album. Ah, okay, sure. Well, it's on iTunes. Um, my The album that all those songs are on is called Alien Wisdom. You can get it on iTunes, or if you would like to actually have a CD, you can go to cdbaby.com. 
cdbaby.com. That's where I went. You can go to iTunes, whichever you prefer. Great music. I enjoy it very much. But okay, we anticipated that one. Now, I'm going to read one of your quotes before we get back in here, because I think this is a very powerful one. For the, for the price of accepting with no holding back our honest share of responsibility in our species' troubles, the door to the higher level opens and God is available. Every time we allow ourselves to accept the terror and regret of Earth's problems, opening our minds and spirits to the collective pain and the collective fate, we are opening our consciousness to the place where God is real and present and awe-inspiring. Why would anyone not take that deal? Every time we let ourselves feel the reality of this cosmos and experience the certainty that I'm not just me, I'm the human species passing through me, we are priming ourselves for divine contact. Does this mean, Nancy, that making this sort of commitment, this sort of spiritual connection... Does that weigh us down? Does it rob us of our happiness? Does it mean if I pay attention to the injustices in the world, such as the third world that you're you're addressing in your music uh, just a minute ago, uh, if I pay attention, if I if I become an activist in some way, I try to make things better for everyone in the world. Does that mean I've given up my spirituality, or I'm practicing spirituality? Have I gained peace, or have I lost peace? Uh, spirituality, as I defined it before, is about feeling and experiencing my connection to the reality that I believe exists. So let me explain why this is uh, the reality that I believe exists. We, human beings, are also emergent phenomena. God is not the only emergent phenomenon. This is the way that the universe, as we understand it, works. Complexity generates emergence. As any situation becomes more complex, something will emerge at a higher level. So we, um, we human beings, are emergent phenomena from the cells and the early uh, primitive organs that, that uh, we're made of. And we, in turn, generate more emergent phenomena at higher levels, as I mentioned, the economy, the government, the media, but also climate change. Climate change is an emergent phenomenon. Nobody actually made it happen directly, but smaller things that many, many people are doing have created that at the global scale. Now, one of the things that my book is trying to help people do is to understand that we humans have a cosmic identity. We fit into this universe in fascinating, big, important ways, and that if we open our minds to that, we get the benefit of being part of this universe. We get the ultimate spirituality. But it's not all good, because each of us is also, at least in the Western world, each of us is also complicit in some of the bad um, emergent phenomena, like climate change. I mean, climate change is certainly being caused by human activity. But which human? It's actually being caused by all of us who use gasoline or who heat our homes with oil or, or natural gas. I mean, we are complicit. We are not at fault, but we are involved. 
and we're involved in many other things. We're involved in in uh, the development of our language. If you start using a new emoticon, or, or we're all involved in many of these emergent phenomena, and we have to realize that what we are is all of these things put together. Now, God, as I'm laying it out, as I'm as I'm saying it, right. exists at this larger size scale. And when we expand our identity so that we realize we are participating on a larger global size scale, we are now raising our consciousness to the level where we can start understanding our connection to God and why God exists and why we're part of it and what it means. That's what I'm trying to say in that par- in that paragraph. Uh, oh, oh, you said. Oh, you also. Wait, wait, let me just say. Let me just say, you also said, does that mean that we, that we have to carry the weight of the world? No, no, it doesn't. And this is also part of the idea of understanding that when things uh, that on different size scales, different laws control what happens. So all the laws of physics are always true, but they're not always relevant. A really obvious example is gravity controls everything on the big size scales. It controls the galaxies, it controls the mountains, and so forth. But when you get down to um, single-celled animals in a drop of water, gravity has nothing to do with them. They, they are completely immune to gravity. It doesn't control them whatsoever. And you get down to even smaller size scales, the atomic size scale, and even electromagnetism uh, doesn't even control when you get down to um, small enough size scales. So the thing is that no matter how important a law is, it doesn't control everything. You have to understand what size scale you're working on. So in our lives as human beings, we have evolved emotions that are appropriate for normal human behavior, but they're not appropriate when we start thinking about huge size scales where they were never intended to be applied. So if you, for example, if your child is hit by a car, then the tremendous emotion that you will have is completely appropriate. But if you have that exact same emotion of terror and, and fear when you see that the amount of carbon in the atmosphere has gone above 350 parts per million, that is what I call emotional scale confusion. In other words, you are confusing the laws that apply on one scale and applying them to the laws that they're applying them to events on another size scale. Our emotions were never intended to be about these giant abstractions. So what we need to do is understand the abstraction, care about the world, feel the urgency of what's going on, but always to live happily on the small scale, regardless of whether we are successful or not at changing things on the large scale. And that is what can keep us motivated and happy. People who are demoralized by the state of the world and don't want to have children or, you know, major things like that, they're confused. They're completely emotionally confused because they're applying certain emotions on the wrong side scale. Wonderfully well said. All right. Uh, You know, I know that there's going to be some confusion arise out of this emerging concept, especially since on this show we have done more than two dozen interviews with... um, uh, those people who claim to have crossed over and come back, what we call NDEs, near-death experiences. So I have this question. How can God, emerging, change the way we think about death in the afterlife? 
one of the points that I've been trying to make is that we have a huge identity. The fact of the matter is we have many identities, we humans, because we have the most complicated brain that we know of in the entire universe. In fact, our brain is the most complicated thing that we know of in the universe. So we have, for example, our identity as an individual. We have our identity as a member of our family. We have our identity as a member of a community or perhaps a profession or a religion or a nation. And these are all very important aspects of who we think of as ourselves. But we need to expand our identity even more. We need to realize that we are ultimately humans, that the fate of humanity is really in our hands. It's in the hands of each of us right now. We, we actually happen to be living at a very pivotal moment. And the 21st century could very well be the century that determines whether we humans go off a cliff by just continuing to, continuing to use so many resources without worrying about the consequences that those consequences um, end up destroying us. That could happen. Or we could actually wake up and we could say, look, we know a lot. We actually understand what needs to be done and we care about the future, not just about our children and our grandchildren. We care about the distant future. We care about the fate of the human species. I think we need to care about the fate of the human species because we don't even know if there's a single other intelligent being out there. Of course there might be. But we could be the jewel of the universe. We, human, intelligent beings, we could be the first. We could be the seed of intelligence in the entire future visible universe. We could be it. And if we acted as if that were our standard, if we said, what would the seed of intelligence in the future visible universe be doing now, we would have a completely different standard of behavior. We would take a much longer-term view. We would understand how we each really depend on each other. So I think we really need to take that, that view. And when you think about the afterlife, we do, we, obviously we don't know what exactly happens to any one of us after we die, but the one thing we know for certain is that we become ancestors. And, you know, in many uh, societies, ancestors are really um, honored. And we could be esteemed ancestors, we could be greatly honored ancestors in the distant future if we do the right things today. And the right things mean if we really care about the future of our species and invest in it. We have to invest our time and our love and our cash all in the future of our species and not discount the value of future people. One of the things we do which is so terrible is that we have adopted this economic model that if you are going to receive, say you're going to receive an inheritance uh, when someone dies, but that someone isn't very young, I mean, isn't very old, and they're still very healthy, and, you know, you kind of wish that uh, you could have it now, but you're not going to get it for a long time. If you try to sell the value of your inheritance to somebody, and there are people who buy these things, they will discount the value of it because of the unlikelihood of getting it anytime soon. So this economic model of discounting the value of something that you're not going to receive for a long time has been rather stupidly and dangerously 
um, um, applied to human beings. We think about humans who will exist in the future as being not as important as we are, not as valuable as we are. And that's simply not true. They're not here yet, but they are absolutely as, um, they're going to be here. They're real. They just haven't been born yet. We need to think about those people as real and as mattering because they are going to carry on the world that we have contributed to. They are going to make anything that we contribute. Like if I write a book, what good is my book if everybody dies? I mean, what good is anything that any of us create if the human species doesn't go on? We need those people. So we need to think of ourselves as esteemed ancestors. And if we act as if we are esteemed ancestors, if when we make a political decision, we say, what would an esteemed ancestor be doing now? If we use that as our standard, then we can have the pleasure of being an esteemed ancestor now while we're alive because we know it'll happen. And that, to me, is the real afterlife. That's the afterlife that's of value. What do I care if people remember my name? What I care about is if I have made a contribution that will change their lives in the future. That, to me, is immortality. I love your pragmatism, pure and simple. All right, listen, I could hog all your time. I've got dozens of more questions, but we do open up this last half hour for our phone lines and our chat room, and so I'm going to jump to... Uh, I'm going to go to the chat room, and I'm going to take the question Mark has. What do you think of Rupert Sheldrake's notion of mental fields? Does that differ from your idea of God? I'm sorry, I really don't know enough about Rupert Sheldrake to answer that question. Okay, let me just throw out real quick, like, uh, you you know what a morphogenic field is. Uh, Sheldrake advances the idea that there's an, a mind field. He calls it an M field, not as in physics, but as in mind. And uh, essentially says that... Uh, the collective minds, uh, all of us, uh, create a field. It has a famous experiment where uh, um, Morse code was taught in a dedicated room, and each time a group of students was brought in with controlled demographics, they learned it quicker, they scored higher uh, on the final exam, and he contributed this to the creation of a minefield, an M field a human form of morphogenic field attached to consciousness. Now, with that explanation, do you want to you look at taking this one on, or shall we pass? Well, I will just say this one thing, because I, really do, I know Sheldrake's work a little bit, but not really enough to comment on it. And um, I will say that the emerging God, because it emerges from us, because it is a planetary phenomenon, and it unites all humans, this God is the God of all humanity, but only humanity because it emerges from all of us it you does unite us it does unite us and there is something that we can share when we hook into this concept of god there's something that we can share that is real i will say that but i don't really want to compare it to sheldrake sorry okay all right we have uh this question out of our chat room uh Nancy mentioned that humans are the center of the universe, but where do aliens fit into the picture? She said they are much more advanced than us. I don't think you said exactly <laughs> that, but okay, go ahead, take that one on. No, I didn't say they are more advanced than us. I said they could be, because we don't know. We don't even know if they exist. Um, but in many ways, all intelligent beings are central to the universe, wherever they may be. And one of the reasons is that all intelligent beings 
have to be approximately the same size that we are. So in that sense, they will be central, uh, the midpoint of all possible sizes. Why do they have to be the size that, that we are? Because um, if they were made of very few atoms, if they were much smaller, they'd be made of too few atoms to be, to be able to have the complexity that could create a consciousness like ours. But if they were much larger than we are, then the speed of light, which uh, limits uh, any kind of internal communication, would slow things down so that they couldn't really think quickly. So if you had, if you had a, uh, an intelligence the size of a galaxy, for example, <clears throat> the visible part of a galaxy is 100,000 light years across. So <laughs> uh, an intelligence that size could only have had a few thoughts in the entire history of the universe. So there's a, a little window right at the middle of size scales. It's probably uh, the range, I like to say, it's between the size of a redwood tree and a puppy. Somewhere in there, that's where aliens have to be. They can't be outside that range. There could be many of them networked, but, uh, you know, as individual thinkers, they have to be there. So we share that with aliens. And there are some other um, scientific things that we've learned where, that, are, uh, that are based on physics rather than all biology right. that would be true for all aliens. Nancy, I don't want to cut you off, but an alien the size of a T-Rex would scare me to death. Listen, <laughs> well, we, have just, <laughs> we have just under a minute, and I want everybody to know how they can reach out, learn more about you, and get your books. So please give your website, how they can learn more, and where they can find your books. Well, thank you. Um, please go to my book website, which is agodthatcouldbereal.com. Just all one word, agodthatcouldbereal.com. And there's a lot there. There are articles about me and videos. And you didn't mention, Eldon, that um, the other preface, the other uh, foreword to my book was written by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. You know, I I was saving that for the close, but that's okay, because he says, and and he says, and and I want to get this in, quote, I dare say many religious believers will be deeply challenged by this book. But he goes on but they will come away better for having read it. It is a great read. I'm telling you, you do want to get it. And Nancy, I I want to thank you for your work and for your willingness to share it with us. And uh, if you're willing, we'll bring you back and talk about your other two. Sure. That'd be fine. Okay. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest once again and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Uh, Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.